We have been spending a few weeks talking about chapter two. And if you're new or or you're wondering, chapter two, what was chapter one? Uh, This is just a a way to speak of the fact that uh, Easter, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead after his death burial, um, and then, then of course, the resurrection, that was chapter one, Jesus bringing salvation to us by his life, by his, his death and resurrection. And now something has begun, and that's, of course, the church. And when, when we become Christians, when God saves us, when we respond to his offer to be our, our Savior and Lord, uh, we, we become part of the church, the church universal, the church local. And uh, when we are part of the church, uh, the local church, God gives us habits. And we've been talking about these habits. They include the ordinances. So two weeks ago, we talked about the ordinance of baptism. Of course, last Sunday, we saw it, uh, and it was amazing. Today, we're going to talk about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and and what this is and why we remember and why we partake. Uh, But another habit he gives is this idea of being examples, which really is just another way of saying being in each other's lives. I need all of you. You all need one another. We, we are not meant to live a completely private life as Christians. To be a Christian is, by definition, to be a part of the church, universal. And to be part of the church universal is, under normal conditions, to be a part of a local church. And that means uh, we're, we're the body, the soma. And again, there's lots of metaphors, lots of ways that the New Testament speaks about being in the church Uh, being a member of the body, being part of a family, uh, and so on, all these different metaphors. But God is at work doing something, right? He didn't just save us and take us to heaven. We're here. He is, in fact, making us more like Jesus. We are becoming more and more holy. 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, I don't have it on the screen. I'll I'll have it later, but I'll read it now. Um, At the end of this letter, Paul prays for this church, and I've used this before as a benediction, Listen to what he says. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May he make you holy completely. That's what he's doing. That's what Paul prayed would happen in this church. And it's a prayer that God is doing. He is making us completely holy. Progressive sanctification. Sometimes we have skyrocketing highs where we feel like, man, we, we could do anything as a Christian. We're so close to God and he's so close to us. I mean, you can feel it. Last week was kind of like that, I hope. Um, not just for those that were baptized, but for all of us. I mean, to just be there and to hear the stories and testimonies of God's work, right? You just, you can almost taste the, the, the sanctification at work. And then there's days when, we feel like God's a million miles away. And of course, often that's usually because we have drifted a million miles away and we're doing our own thing. And, and, but, but he never leaves us. He's faithful. That's why Paul goes on to say there in 1 Thessalonians 5, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He is sanctifying you. He is sanctifying me completely and he will surely do it. Even if you don't feel like it this morning, if you feel like the biggest flop of a follower of Jesus, he will do it. Yours is not to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and prove your worth to God. 
you're worth his son. He sent his son. And, and we need to lean into that and, and let his sanctification take its course. Yes, we cooperate. Yes, we need to obey. And we need to stay in the stream of what he's doing. But he will do it. And we could pray right there and go eat chocolate. Uh, but we're not going to. We've got a little bit more to do this morning. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that the, the Protestant reformers, um, they preferred the term evangelical. And, and I want to just kind of take a minute and return to this for a second because, man, we live in a day when that word gets co-opted in ways that it should not. Um, but these reformers, they felt coming out of kind of the... Um, the Roman Catholic Church era, kind of the, those ages where, where um, the church wasn't listening to God's word. It was more about tradition and tradition and tradition. They wanted to get back to the gospel. So look at the screen, Romans 1.16. Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the gospel. Now, we, we need to just talk about this word. We, we need to not assume we all know what that word means. It's a church word, and so let's, let's, let's talk. Um, the English word, just the word gospel, it comes from Old English, which none of us speak, uh, but the Old English word God spell, which is two words put together, God under Old English, not meaning God, their God, but, but good, and then the word spell, meaning news or a story. So the God spell, the good story. So Old English had this word, gospel. It means good news. Okay, clean enough. That's what the word in English means. Now let's talk about Greek because the New Testament was written to us in the Greek language. Um, when we read that verse, let's look at it again. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which means what in English? Thank you. Okay, good news, right? It comes from this old English word. The Greek word is, you can see it there. I don't expect you to know how to read Greek. It's euangelion is how you say it with the little accents and, and things. That word too means good news. Now, what has happened with language is the Latin word is simply a transliteration of that Greek word. And you see there a transliteration of the Latin evangelium or evangel. And if you look at that Greek word, you could see how there's a U, but depending on how you write it, it might look like a V. So the Latin, they just made a word and transliterated. Well, this Greek word looks like, you know, E-V-U, E-V-A-N-G, evangel. So Latin, evangel, evangelium, and thus evangelical. So when you hear evangelical, um, what does it mean? Well, Again, it gets co-opted, but it means gospel. It means good news. When we at this church talk about being a part of the evangelical free church of America, we, we are speaking about the gospel. We are a church that holds to Romans 1.16, that it's the gospel that saves, and we're not ashamed of it. it. has nothing to do with politics, conservative, far-right, leaning. Evangelical means gospel. And so the reformers... They liked that term. They wanted to be known as evangelicals. They were about the gospel because their conviction was a true church proclaims this evangel, proclaims this good news. 
They didn't make up the term reformer. They didn't make up the term Protestant. Those things were true of what they did, but they wanted to be known as gospelers, heralders, evangelicals. And that's what the word means. So a true church, the reformers said, among other things, and they were reacting to their time, but among other things, a true church proclaims the good news. But here's where we're going. A true church also is a visible community, right? A visible community. So they believe that not only would a true church be evangelical, proclaiming gospel, good news, but, but it, would, it would do a couple of things that Jesus mandated to be visible. And so we have these ordinances, baptism, which we saw last week, we talked about two weeks ago, and the Lord's Supper. And so these two ordinances, they help define who's a part of a church, who is part of that visible, tangible expression of the gospel. So here's our statement of faith, number seven. We believe that the true church, so universal church, comprises all who have been justified by God's grace. That's stuff that God speaks of in Romans. We'll be looking at that this fall. Justification by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They, that is, the true church, those who are a part of it, are united by the Holy Spirit in the body, the soma of Christ, of which he, Jesus, is the head. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership, we call it covenant membership, should be composed only of believers. So anybody's welcome to come, people that are investigating the claims of Jesus and are curious, absolutely come and, and listen and participate and, and be involved. But to be a member, and again, we call it covenant membership, um, it should only be those who are those justified or those who are believers. A statement goes on. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly expressed the gospel. So remember last week in the water, here you had four different people uh, to, to my right and to your left, and they went down into the water, a picture of Jesus' death and burial, then they came up out of the water, a picture of his resurrection. It visibly and tangibly expresses the gospel. And a little bit later this morning, we're gonna take some bread and uh, we don't use wine, we use juice, but uh, some, some grape drink uh, that visibly and tangibly in what they signify express the gospel. So just to you know, orient ourselves our to these ordinances, baptism, the Lord's Supper, visibly and tangibly express the gospel. They help define who is part of the universal church, who's then part of the the local church. All of that as a bit of rewind and a bit of a setup for this morning to talk about the Lord's Supper, communion. What is it supposed to be all about? Our tradition, our, our habit here at Soma is to spend some time on the first Sunday of the month, which is today, uh, partaking, but I want to spend the whole morning doing some teaching, trying to help us understand what is it supposed to be about. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11. If you have a Bible, I would invite you there. And we're going to identify seven. This is a seven-point sermon. 
not a three-pointer, but a seven-pointer. A seven-point sermon. Uh, we're going to find these truths, seven truths from 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Uh, I've adapted this list from one by uh, one of my favorite theologians, Don Carson. And we'll, we'll note these seven truths. And again, it's important every once in a while, like two weeks ago, to spend the sermon on baptism and then to do it. And then today to spend the whole morning looking in depth at God's word and then partaking, just so we remember what, what it is um, that, that we do once a month. Or if you visit some other church and they do it differently, what, what, what it means, okay? So 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11 is where we'll be. And we are going to talk about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Now, before we get into the text and into the, the main points, let me make a preliminary point. So I guess I'm cheating. It's really an eight-pointer uh, sermon. But, but preliminary point number one, let's just talk about the names. The Lord's Supper, communion. Um, I typically use both words interchangeably, Okay. We, we are going to partake of communion. We are going to have the Lord's Supper today. And so uh, those are referring to the same thing. And, and those are the two terms that I prefer. Now, the word communion, we'll, we'll see it in our text in just a few minutes, uh, why we call it that. Uh, the Lord's Supper name comes from the fact that Jesus instituted it. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he would uh, be betrayed and then eventually the next day be, be put onto the cross. He instituted or ordained, so it's an ordinance, right? This, this meal, so it's his meal, okay? So that's where Lord's Supper comes. Um, some groups call it the breaking of bread, and that, and that is partly what we do. Um, sometimes you'll, you'll hear the word Eucharist. Uh, that word comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving. Uh, Eucharist means thanksgiving, um, that's not a very common use in our circles, in Protestant circles, mainly because uh, Roman Catholic churches use the term Eucharist, and what they mean by it is very different than what Protestants mean. So most Protestants don't use that term as, as to not be confusing. But this is the Lord's Supper, communion, the breaking of bread. And it is a thanksgiving. In that sense, Eucharist is very fitting, Okay. We speak of it here typically as communion or the Lord's Supper. Okay, that was point zero. Now we get to point number one. The Lord's Supper symbolizes our oneness in the body of Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let me read verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So that word, in this verse, these verses, you hear the word participation. The cup, is it not a participation? The bread, is it not a participation? Well, that word can also be translated with the word fellowship or sharing or the, the King James translation, maybe some of you grew up with it, uses the word communion. 
So that's where the name communion comes from. It's this word participation or fellowship or, or sharing. You've, you've probably heard the Greek word koinonia. And so there are churches that have koinonia groups or, or, or they'll say, we're gonna have koinonia time. Koinonia is just the Greek word often translated fellowship, sharing, participation, communion. That, that's where that word comes from. I, I happen to like The word sharing, I think it expresses the meaning of what God intended through the Apostle Paul. So here's those two verses from the Christian Standard Bible, and and it's read this way. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. The idea in verse 16 is that the cup, the bread, they're expressions of our fellowship, our our oneness, okay? They're they're expressions of what we share together. And that's the point expressly made in verse 17. Don Carson notes that, of course, the bread reminds us of Jesus' body on the cross, but the New Testament language goes further, and we see it here, that sometimes the language of Jesus' body speaks of the body as not his body on the cross, but the church, right? So then a further connection is made. If the body of Christ is symbolized in bread and the church is the body of Christ, then there is some connection, a symbolic connection between the bread and the church. And so verse 17 there, because there is one bread, We who are many are one body. When we take the bread in a moment, uh, the bread you're going to get a piece of came from a whole, not a loaf, right? Kind of a tortilla flatbread deal. That's ours here. But right, those pieces were ripped from one body and we all partake. Do you see the symbolism? There's one loaf, one bread, and we all take of it. It symbolizes our, our unity. At this point, Paul's not speaking of Jesus' body broken, you know, on the cross, his body given up for us. Here, the connection is to this this unity, this oneness. The Lord's Supper symbolizes our oneness. This is why I think, now jump ahead to chapter 11, verses 17 to 22. Listen to the strong, strong words the Apostle Paul has for what was happening in Corinth. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in, one, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Was the last time we heard those verses before? <laughs> yeah. Now, 
a couple things to point out. Um, in the context, in kind of the Greco-Roman world, okay, um, everyone didn't practice, you know, a seven-day calendar, and they, they didn't have a 10 o'clock service at 8.40 Sonoma. I mean, like, like, things were different. Things were very different. Outside of Jewish, the Jewish Christians who did practice a seven-day you know, all of that, right? That the broader Greco-Roman world didn't. And so in the church, with Jew and Gentile, um, you, you had it where they, they, yes, would meet on the first day of the week, but some people showed up early and some people couldn't be done with their work and some were slaves and they couldn't get away until an odd time. So they would, they would come together and some would bring their stuff, their food, and their wine, and so some would be there a long time, and they'd be eating and enjoying their food, and, and Paul says, that's not coming together for the Lord's Supper. You're, you're just having this meal. Can't you do that at home? Because there's other people that show up, and they don't have anything. They're poor. They're slaves, and, and you've now eaten, and you're drunk, and, and you see, that's not unity. That's not fellowship. That's not sharing. That's divisive. And so that's why Paul says, no, I'm not going to commend you because when you get together, you're not coming together for the Lord's Supper. Now, of course, you're all pretty good about getting here on time. I won't tell you who came in late today or, you know, anything like that. But, right, we, our world is different. We, we generally come together and, and we're here. You didn't bring your communion meal, your Lord's Supper meal. We, we provide it. So, so we don't have that cultural thing. Um, but we have things that divide us too. Um, we, we come in and we, we have our biases over, about those people and, oh gosh, we, you know, we have a prejudice about that. And we're, we're uh, you know, irritated by this and that. And, and, and yet, like, so we can have heart things that, that divide. Um, maybe it's, you know, an ethnic thing, hopefully not, but that's definitely part of our country's history, device, divide, uh, division in the church, um, wealth-based hierarchies. So, so we need to hear Paul's strong words. In fact, um, if you look um, down at verse 22, uh, so he says there, yeah, you've got or sorry, not 22, I read that. Jump to verse 33. He says, then, so brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Don't, don't just eat ahead. If anyone's hungry, do that at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And so he's got some more to say. But so, so we need to remember, when we, when we come together, it's supposed to symbolize our unity, our oneness. So while we don't have the same cultural thing, do we have things that divide us? And we need to pray about that and think about that. And we'll, we'll, we'll see as we get through the next six points. Paul's going to address the sinful things in our heart that exist. But the point stands, the Lord's Supper symbolizes our oneness in the body of Christ. Among other things, that's one point we see here in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. It's to symbolize our fellowship, our sharing. We're one. We're diverse, many members, but we're one body. So that's point one. Number two, the Lord's Supper reminds us of Jesus' death as our Redeemer. This is probably the point we all know fairly well. This is 
probably the point I make the most when I lead us. Verse 23 of chapter 11. The apostle writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's been said that the four most disputed words in the entire history of the church are the words, this is my body. What do those words mean? Uh, Martin Luther famously is, is said to have written them like, carved him into the table at a debate he was having with, with others about, about the Lord's Supper. This was the one issue that kept Luther and, and Zwingli, who was another reformer from agreeing. Martin Luther was a stubborn German. Uh, that is very true. And he insisted that there was more to it than what Zwingli thought. And so he carves in my body in, in this table uh, at, this, at this gathering. Um, well, we aren't going to spend too much time on the disputes and, and so on. But I want you to hear again the word, at least here in Paul, and it's, it's found in Luke as well. The word remember. Okay, we, the Lord's Supper reminds us, we remember Jesus' death, and it's his death as our Redeemer. The church spends a lot of time on a lot of things, right? We, 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 we do. We, we have to teach, and then there's things to teach through on Sunday. There's teaching to be done in kids' classes. There's home groups to be had and things to cover and classes. And, um, and of course, there's just life things. You've got to pay bills and there's rent and, you know, meet with people, counseling. Uh, I mean, on and on and on and on and on. It's good every once in a while to just remember that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, said, this represents my body. Remember why I came. Remember that I came to seek and save the lost. Remember that I came because God so loved the world that he sent me. Remember that I came because I love you. Remember that I gave my life for you. Remember, do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper reminds us when we take, we remember that Jesus came as our redeemer. Our catechism for today fits right in here. So church, I'll read the question and would you join me in answering? Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? And the answer, yes. To satisfy his justice, God himself, out of mercy, mere mercy, reconciles us to himself and delivers us from sin and from the punishment for sin by a redeemer. The catechism today, 19, falls after us having to think about God's law, what God has called his people to do and how they're supposed to live and how we sin and we can't keep the law and we need a redeemer. We need someone to come and save us. And so there is a way to, be, to escape God's judgment and wrath and it's through a redeemer and we have one in the Lord Jesus 
He is our redeemer. And so this meal, this Lord's Supper, this communion reminds us of Jesus' death as our redeemer. Number three, the Lord's Supper is the seal of the new covenant. So back in chapter 11, verse 25, in that context of Jesus giving the meal, in verse 25, it says, in the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So when we come to this meal, this Lord's Supper, we can say that we have the seal of the new covenant. His blood shed once for all would be the the way to be in this covenant relationship with God what's called the new covenant, once and for all. No longer is it necessary to have blood sacrifice year after year, of animal sacrifice year after year, but once and for all, Jesus' blood has caused us to have this new covenant. It supersedes the old and this, this meal that the Spirit brings about in us. It, this, this, this meal symbolizes this. As we remember, this, this meal is a sign, a seal of that new covenant. In the language of the prophet Jeremiah, we now have God's law written on our hearts. In the language of the prophet Ezekiel, we have been washed with water. A spear has been given to us. And in the language of the prophet Joel, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, young and old, men and women. Glorious thing to have the new covenant. And all this is language of the new covenant. And so, here we have this seal, this sign. God, who is a covenantal God, covenantal. He's in this relationship with us and it can't be, it can't cease. God has seen to it that this covenant he's entered into, he shed his blood for us and we, we can't break off from that covenant once we are in. He is faithful. Remember the verse I read, here it is finally for you to see. The God of peace himself May he sanctify you completely, and he is. And may our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at his coming, the coming of our Lord Jesus, because he who calls you, that's one way of saying he who saves you, he who's called you his son and daughter, he is faithful. He will surely do it. He is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, And he's made us to have this covenant relationship with him. And the Lord's Supper is the seal of that. Jesus' death sealed it. The ordinance reminds us of the new covenant. Number four, the Lord's Supper ought to function evangelistically. So continuing in 1 Corinthians, verse 26, Paul writes, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we partake of this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. Just as baptism proclaims the Lord's death and resurrection, right? When we partake, we proclaim the Lord's death. And in a moment, um, we, we will do that. Now, it's interesting because we'll see also that this meal is for Christians, right? If this is the sign of a new covenant, it's only those that are in the new covenant that should partake. And only those that 
that remember what Jesus did for them, which is Christians should partake. But there's going to be occasions where there's people that don't yet believe, and that's great. And there's nothing wrong with, with people that don't believe yet, aren't sure of, of passing the elements and watching what those of us do that, that do believe. It, there, there's an evangelistic tone to it, right? Because this visibly and tangibly expresses the gospel. Uh, Carson writes about a pastor friend of his from England who, who has a church where lots of unbelievers and yet to believe folks come and they, they take communion and this pastor in England says something like this when he's in those services. He says, if this is the first time you're in our church, you're going to find what we do now a bit strange. So let me explain. We're, we're actually going to take a little bread and eat it. We're going to take a little wine or juice and drink it. And the reason we do it is because Jesus told us to. He didn't tell us to do this because it's magic or because it's like medicine of eternity or, or you know, some later fathers in the church taught. No, it's because we recognize that it is fundamentally important to think back again and again to Jesus' death and remember what it means. And then he goes on to explain the gospel. And then he says, now, if you're not a Christian, it, it would be quite frankly blasphemous for you to take these elements. But you ought to watch as the Christians around you take them, not because they're any better than you, but because they know what they've been forgiven by, by Jesus who gave his life on their behalf. And that's why they remember They repent, you watch, and as you watch, you'll hear echoes and see echoes of the gospel of God, the good news of God's redemption. So even today, if you are here and you don't yet believe, it's great that you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. And if you have questions, I'd love to talk. But when we get to passing the elements, just just pass, and there's no shame in that. This is a, a meal for God's sons and daughters, for Christians. But the Lord's Supper ought to function evangelistically because it proclaims the gospel. Number five, the Lord's Supper is a temporary rite of anticipation. The Lord's Supper is temporary. Verse 26 For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he comes. That's why it's temporary. We don't know when he's coming. Could be today, could be this week. We don't know. Until he comes, we we do this meal, we proclaim his death, but it's temporary. When he comes back, we won't have this meal anymore. We'll, we'll eat it with him. There'll be a final, like Jesus says, I'm gonna eat this with you. But then we won't do it again and again and again. This, this meal is, is a meal that's for the church until he comes. Just as the Jews celebrated Passover um, and then Jesus expanded his meal to, to make connections, uh, scholars tell us that a lot of times the Jews who celebrated Passover, they would end their meal and say, next year in Jerusalem. And they remembered that they had been uh, removed from their land. They were dispersed. But they learned to say at the end of every Passover, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. And so for us, when we take this meal, we're saying, 
Come back, Jesus, until you return, until you return. The Lord's Supper is a temporary rite of anticipation for him coming back, who said he would, and who said he would eat it with us, and then we'll celebrate this this glorious reunion with him. Number six, the Lord's Supper provides an opportunity for self-examination. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now notice, notice the wording. Whoever eats or drinks in an unworthy manner. The issue is not a, a person who's unworthy. The issue is about the manner in which you partake, which is one of the reasons why it's good today and once in a while for us to spend a longer time talking about this meal. Since we do it rather quickly, it's at the end of a service, and we just kind of, you know, and we go. Paul says, if it's done in an unworthy manner, there could be uh, this, this being guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. The, the, the point seems to be this. We, we all know we are not perfect, right? We've, been, we've looked at it now that, that God is sanctifying us. But, but if we're coming to a meal to remember what Jesus did to forgive us and wash us, to deal with our sin, And then in the same breath or in the next hour, we're going to deliberately go live a certain way, willfully choose to sin. Um, That seems to be the issue of of taking this meal in an unworthy manner, to just eat and drink while you, you are not dealing with sin in your life. That's, that's an unworthy manner. And again, we all have things, which is why it's good to slow down, and we'll do that today. We'll, we'll pass the elements, and you'll have time to just pray, God, search me. Is there any unconfessed sin? You know, what about the person in my family that I yelled at this morning? God, what about what I was thinking about last night? Or, or maybe it's forward, like, God, I, I've been planning to do such and such. Oh, no, I'm, I'm remembering that you died for me. You forgave me. I'm a new man, new woman in Christ. I don't want to live that way. You see? The Lord's Supper it gives an opportunity for us to, to renew our fellowship with the Lord, to make sure we're not living in any um, way that's nurturing sin, that's not, that's not dealing with our sin. We want to remember what he did. Yes, we're sinners, but we have a greater Savior, and we want to live out of the overflow of that. He goes on in verse 28 and 29 to say, let a person examine him or herself. So see, that's where we examine, we pray, God, search my heart. And so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup worthily. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on him or herself. The, the idea is probably that to, to, to eat or drink without discerning, meaning without recognizing or evaluating what Jesus did, like to just do it, you know, half-heartedly on autopilot. 
the Lord's Supper provides us this opportunity for this self-examination. We don't want to just say, yes, I accept your forgiveness, but then live deliberately in a way that is wrong. It's an opportunity to repent. And then finally, number seven, the Lord's Supper reminds us of, back to the word covenant, covenantal judgment. So if you read the Carson book a few months ago on the love of God, one way God loves us is that the covenantal love he has for his sons and daughters is different than loving the whole world and and different things, okay? Anyway, there's overtones here of this. But listen to verses 30 to 32. That is why, meaning you haven't evaluated, you haven't, you know, discerned the body, you you haven't done the self-examination. So now, verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I don't have time to build the case. I've done it before, and I'm sure we'll do it again. But there are examples in the scriptures, friends, of Christians being sick, Christians dying because they weren't dealing with their sin. And it doesn't mean that every instance of sickness is because of sin. No, it's not a universal truth, but there are examples. Examples here is one of them. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts is an example they, they lied about the amount of money they made on the sale, and God dealt with their lying by taking them out. Um, in John chapter 9, you have a man born blind. We looked at that sign. And he had not been born blind because of any sin. On the flip side, you might recall, in John 5, we looked at the sign of the man who was 38 years paralyzed, and Jesus said it was because of his sin. There was some sin. So we don't, that, we have a hard time with that, but, but the scriptures say that there are occasions where, where God's sons and daughters are sick. Sometimes they die because of sin, and it's God dealing with his, his people. Um, Kristen and I had a mentor in the earliest days of our marriage. Um, he used to pray every day, several things. And one of his prayers was, God, if I'm gonna sin today in such a way to bring disgrace to you, your church, my family, take me out. He would rather be done and be in the presence of the Lord than to live and to sin in such a way that it would bring shame and disgrace on the name of Jesus and his church and his family. He recognized this mentor that Sometimes there is covenantal judgment. God is more concerned with our eternal dwelling with him than our temporary life here. And if our temporary life here is gonna cause problems, if there's, you know, it may be, it can be, sometimes it is, that there is judgment. And, and that's, that's, I know, heavy. But we see it in the scriptures. And so the Lord's Supper Church reminds us of covenantal judgment. But the Lord's Supper is this meal that that covers all these things that we've looked at rather quickly today from 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. It's a joyful celebration that we aren't having to 
be the good news ourselves to God. We don't have to make ourselves right because we can't. But we have this redeemer who, who has come. And so we, we come to remember. We come to remember. I'm going to invite Sherry and Dan back onto the platform. And I'm going to invite those that are going to pass the elements to come forward now um, and um, prepare to, to pass those. And what we will do this morning is what we typically do. In, in a moment, um, the, the bread will come and uh, invite you to, to take a piece and just hold on to it. And, and while it's coming, you can pray, you can uh, talk to God, have him search your heart, deal with your sin, deal with anything that's there, ask him to search your heart. I would even say, if you need to get up and go say something to somebody, do it. You know, if, if that is appropriate. But, but examine and ask God to search your heart. And, and then on my instruction, because it's, a family meal, we will take and eat together. And then the cup will come. And again, you can keep praying. And then on my instruction, we will, we will drink together. So let me pray and then we'll pass uh, the bread to start. Father, thank you for this meal. This meal that has a lot to say in it. It does visibly and tangibly express the good news, the gospel. This this fact that you have sent God a redeemer and it's the Lord Jesus this, this meal we saw first it represents our, our unity, our, our sharing our fellowship together we, we are part of one body so now prepare us to take together thank you for this, this visible tangible expression of the gospel in Jesus name